Chapter 9. The Heart and Mind. The soul comes into the world reaching out trustingly with a child's arms. The Wind of Intention. Everyone is born an individual, unique creature that later develops a personality. Thoughts, knowledge, convictions, habits, even character gradually build up like layers of plaque. These parts of the self obviously do not come out of nowhere, and yet what is there of us originally? Could we all really have begun as a completely clean sheet? Just try for a moment being a completely clean sheet. Close your eyes and stop the mental chatter. If you contemplate the blackness, you will manage not to think for a short period of time. For a moment, your mind will be completely empty, and yet you do not stop being yourself in this moment. The activity of the mind is temporarily halted, but a sense of the integrity of the self remains. How do you explain that you are, in fact, you? An awareness of personal identity usually comes from one's position in society. Yet imagine for a moment that the social environment has disappeared and that you are just hanging in the empty space of the cosmos. There's no earth, no sun, no past, and no future. Just black emptiness. Everything else has disappeared. All that remains is you. So what of your former personality? All knowledge and thoughts, manners, habits, desires, fears, character, and pursuits were dependent on your previous environment. What would remain of the self? It is difficult to discuss this question within the framework of reason, and yet a discussion on the eternal theme of the existence of the soul goes beyond the scope and purpose of this book. It would also take up a lot of time and lead to nothing. Neither is the issue of existence of the human soul of particular importance to the aims of transurfing. It may suit you to believe in the soul, or as you might prefer to call it, the subconscious. You may or may not agree with the concept of the eternal nature of the soul, but it is inarguable that the human psyche consists of the conscious and the unconscious. We previously agreed that all conscious experience would be referred to as the mind, and all unconscious experience as related to the heart or soul. For the sake of simplicity and practical purposes, we need only to draw a rough distinction between the heart and the mind by suggesting that feelings relate to the former and thoughts to the latter. States of elation, openness and inspiration, as well as oppression and depression, depend on the inner feelings of the heart. The mind is entirely in the power of pendulums, which impose limiting perceptions and beliefs. The extent of human freedom is narrowed to what pendulums will permit. This may explain why people tend to identify their position in the world mistakenly as servant or master. From the point of view of transurfing, neither of those positions is correct. For man is nothing more than a drop that flies in from the ocean for a brief moment. Sea spray that forms when an ocean wave crashes serves as a good illustration of birth and death. A drop of spray that has become separated from the waves cannot experience oneness with the ocean or receive energy from it. The individual drop of spray thinks that it exists separately and has nothing in common with the ocean until such a time as it falls back into the waters and its awareness of oneness is restored. At this point, the drop merges with the ocean into a single whole, for in essence they are made up of the same element, water. An individual particle of water can take various forms. It can be a drop, a snowflake, an icicle, or a cloud or stream. The form differs, but the essence is the same. 
The particle does not remember that it is the same as the ocean. It believes that it exists in the form of a drop, a snowflake or a cloud of steam, and the ocean is made up of waves, foam, spray, icebergs, currents, and calm. It is very difficult for the particle to see the common essence inherent in all these external manifestations of water. Despite being familiar, the essential commonality remains elusive. Biblical texts on the subject reveal the truth colored by the distortion of the mind. The statement that God created man in his image and likeness is true, only this truth is normally distorted. God can take any form, but his essence does not lie in the fact that he has a head, two hands, and two feet. If you compare God with the ocean and the individual with the drop, both have the same essence, which is water. According to the testimony of people who have had near-death experiences, when death is close by, the soul experiences an inexplicable serenity and bliss that comes from a feeling of oneness with the cosmos. In a sense, the drop has returned to the ocean and rediscovered the awareness of its true essence, knowing that it consists of the same substance as the ocean. In that moment, the entire energy of the ocean passes through the drop. Throughout the history of human civilization, man has always sought a feeling of connectedness with the universe. In pursuit of spiritual perfection, all religious schools have ultimately striven for the same goal of reaching enlightenment, of experiencing a sense of oneness with the world, of dissolving into the ocean of energy, losing awareness of the self as a separate essence. An enlightened master has all the energy of the universe at their disposal. They see no fundamental difference between themselves and infinity. Their thought energy enters into resonance with the energy of the ocean. Then the intention of the enlightened becomes identical to outer intention, the powerful and unfathomable force that rules the world. When a kite is the right shape, it will climb up through the airstreams. In the same way, the wind of outer intention lifts a person up and carries them through the field to a sector that corresponds to the quality of their thought energy. In order to travel purposefully through the space, you have to be able to feel the wind of outer intention as clearly as you feel currents of air or water. Until a person becomes conscious of their essence and the nature of their oneness with the ocean, the workings of outer intention will be beyond their grasp. We are not going to set ourselves the task of reaching enlightenment, for this would be too hard a task, and in any case, it is not essential to the realization of your personal goals. You do not have to hide away in Tibet and meditate. Transurfing provides a loophole which allows you to compel outer intention to your personal will, to a small degree perhaps, but nonetheless, enough for you to fulfill your desires. The principle of the loophole is relatively simple. The mind has will but is not capable of ruling outer intention. The heart, on the other hand, can experience oneness with outer intention, but has no will, flying through the alternative space like an uncontrolled kite. Achieving unity between heart and mind is enough to bring outer intention under the sway of your will. Creating a harmonious connection between heart and mind is difficult, but nonetheless realistically an achievable task. As we saw earlier, the effect of outer intention is quite tangible when it comes to working against the will of the conscious mind and materializing our worst expectations. What we need to do now is to understand how our best expectations can also be realized. In the chapter on intention, we define the key conditions for mastering outer intention. Awareness, reducing importance, and letting go of the goal. Soon you will discover new secrets of transurfing which will open more doors onto the mysterious world of outer intention.
the heart's sail. People generally tend to interpret themselves and other physical phenomena in the world as essentially material objects. Yet all material objects have one informational and energetic essence in common which defies conventional perception. It is this essence that directs the behavior of material realization in the alternative space. The language of abstract symbols we are used to referring to is only sufficient to describe the outer manifestations of this informational and energetic essence. The original essence itself cannot be unambiguously described using the language of the mind, hence the magnitude of philosophical and religious movements that have attempted to do so. Human perception is like this because we have been taught since early childhood to concentrate our attention on separate elements. Look at Lila. These are your hands, and these are your feet, and this is your porridge. Look at the bird. Our perception continues to be shaped and conditioned throughout our entire life, and so the mind constantly channels data according to an established template of how the world is described. For example, if someone has never seen another person's energy field, the mind would be reluctant for the eyes to perceive it because it is not consistent with the established template. In childhood, no one ever drew our attention to auras, and so they were excluded from the template we use to describe the world. Now we understand theoretically that the aura exists, but our ability to perceive it visually is poorly developed. The mechanism of perception still remains a puzzle. Our current understanding is such that only certain elements of it can be discussed with any clarity. Ants, for example, have never seen the stars. They have never seen the sun, mountains, or even the forest. Their vision is designed so that from birth they only focus on objects that lie in close proximity. An ant's perception of the world differs radically from our own. When we ask, what does the world really look like? We are attempting to pose an objective question in the hope of receiving an objective answer, but the question is not really objective. The world looks just as we see it, because the notion looks like is also an element of the template that colors our perception. In the template of a blind mole, for example, the notion looks like simply does not exist. The world demonstrates itself to us in accordance with our template of perception, and at the same time, the world does not actually look like anything. There is no point in claiming that the world looks as it always has, or looks like an accumulation of illuminated energy, or anything else. There is only any point to speaking of the individual manifestations of reality that we are capable of perceiving. Consciousness is a product of human society and emerges from the concepts and definitions that surround us. Whereas the soul, or subconscious, is part of man from birth, consciousness is acquired as the surrounding world becomes defined by ideas and definitions in terms of human language. The world does not only exist because people have described it using their own concepts. In this sense, the human soul will always be illiterate, for it does not understand the human language of words. The heart is only capable of understanding the things we call feelings. First, a thought emerges, and only afterwards is it formulated into words. You do not have to have words to think. Thoughts are primary, not words, and thoughts are the language the subconscious can understand. There's no point in trying to communicate with the subconscious in the language of the intellect. The existing set of concepts society uses is far from sufficient to express the entirety of human experience. As you can see, I was not able to fully describe the nature of outer intention. 
Fortunately, humanity has preserved one means of universal expression through art. We do not need words in order to understand works of art. Everyone can understand the language of the heart. This is the language of things created with love and passion. When a person walks towards their innermost dream, through the right door, i.e. does the thing that suits their soul best, they become capable of creating a masterpiece. This is how art is born. You can graduate from a conservatory and compose colorless music that no one remembers, and you can paint empty paintings that are technically immaculate, but no one would proclaim them as a masterpiece. Yet, if you can say of a created work that it has something, then it can at least be considered a work of art. What specifically that something is, the critics will explain. But one thing is certain, that something can be understood by all without words. The Mona Lisa's smile speaks in a language everyone can understand. There are no words. Words fall short of expressing the things we understand instinctively. What exactly is being comprehended is not important, as everyone has their own unique way of divining and feeling. You could, of course, explain that the Mona Lisa's smile is mysterious, or that it has an elusive quality, etc. But words are still powerless to explain that special something that makes the painting nothing less than a masterpiece. It is not just the elusive quality of the Mona Lisa's smile that evokes such avid interest. Have you ever noticed that the Mona Lisa's smile is similar to the Buddha's smile? People say that the Buddha achieved enlightenment during his own lifetime. In other words, people say that the Buddha, like the droplet of water, experienced a sense of oneness with the entire ocean. In all the pictures of the Buddha, his smile is totally dispassionate, and at the same time it expresses serenity and bliss. It is a smile that can be characterized as an expression of the contemplation of eternity. When you see the Buddha's smile for the first time, it evokes a strange mixture of bewilderment and curiosity because it reminds you of a drop of something distant and forgotten, the feeling of oneness with the ocean. Any reminder of this distant oneness touches a chord in the heart. When human language emerged, the language of the soul gradually began to atrophy. People focused too exclusively on the language of the mind, and so with time it began to take primary position in our experience. Even the story that explains how this occurred is told in the context of an intellectual concept. A distortion of the process is described in the legend of the Tower of Babel, in accordance with which the gods became angry with man for failing to construct a building that reached the height of the heavens, and so they confounded the languages of man so that people would no longer be able to understand one another. In essence, the majority of myths and legends express a truth which has been interpreted via mental constructs. Perhaps the high tower serves as a metaphor for the power the people received when they learned to express their will consciously in the language of the mind. As we have said already, the heart can feel the wind of outer intention, but it is not capable of putting up a sail to harness the wind's force. The will of the mind, however, can put up a sail. Will is an attribute of conscious awareness. The subconscious flight of the heart on the winds of outer intention is spontaneous and uncontrolled, whereas conscious awareness allows personal will to be expressed deliberately. Initially, before the languages of the heart and mind became so divorced from one another, harmonious connection between heart and mind was easily achieved. Later, the mind focused so intently on constructing a worldview based on its own references that its knowledge of outer intention was left far behind. 
Due to colossal intellectual effort, the mind has achieved outstanding success in the technotronic world of material realization, but has lost connection with everything that is in any way related to the unrealized alternatives space. It is because the mind has radically distanced itself from an understanding of outer intention that so many ideas within the transurfing model seem implausible. The mind can retrieve the knowledge that's been lost, but in order to do so, there must be a connection between heart and mind. The difficulty is that the heart, unlike the mind, does not think. It knows. While the mind considers the information it receives passing it through the analytical filter of the template worldview, the heart receives knowledge from the information field directly, without subjecting it to analysis and communicates with outer intention in the same manner. In order to make this communication more focused, there has to be agreement between the will of the mind and the strivings of the heart. Union between heart and mind is essential. If you can achieve this connection, your heart's sail will fill up with the wind of outer intention and carry you directly to your goal. The Wizard Within Your heart already has everything you need to know to realize your desires. Do you remember the story of the Wizard of Oz? The clever tin man dreams of having a brain. The kind scarecrow longs for a heart. The brave lion strives to acquire courage and the girl wants to go home. All the characters already have the things they desire, but if the wizard tells them so, it would sound too implausible to be true, and so he creates a magic ritual instead. In reality, all that was needed was for the tin man, scarecrow, and lion to give themselves permission to have the qualities they so desired because they already existed in their soul. For Dorothy, the task was a little bit more complicated. She had to express total will in the will to have in order to return home. The magic ritual helped her to strengthen her faith, and then the wind of intention carried her home. As we have already said, not everything that is connected with outer intention fits into the framework of the concepts of the mind. The mind is responsible for this scenario. Pendulums also assisted in the process because freedom and individual control over outer intention would have severely undermined the pendulum's interests. The pendulum monsters only benefit from people who do not stand out in any way and are content to work for them as a cog in a wheel. The realization of individual potential is a pernicious threat to the pendulum because an individual who is free works for their own development and prosperity. Hence, from childhood, we are instilled with conditioned standards and rules which conveniently mold us into obedient adherence. On the one hand, there is a positive need to teach the individual certain rules that will help them to get along in life, as the people who break these rules become losers or outcasts. On the other hand, social conditioning strongly suppresses a person's unique individuality, and so people generally cannot say what they really want and have no idea of their true capabilities. If you want to suppress a person's ability to master outer intention, it is enough to break the heart's connection with the mind. Throughout the history of humanity, Huge efforts have been made to divorce the heart from the mind. The mind has worked constantly to perfect its language of symbols, at the same time becoming ever less practiced in the language of the heart. Pendulums of religion, like pendulums of science, have pulled the mind in different directions as far as possible from the true nature of the heart. And finally, the development of industrial and information technologies witnessed over recent centuries has dissolved the connection altogether. 
The influence of pendulums is particularly great at the present time because everyone is now reading books, listening to the radio, watching television, and accessing information via the internet. Humanity has absorbed a huge volume of knowledge and equally as much delusion which holds just as steadfastly in the psyche. The separation of heart and mind is humanity's greatest loss. The idea that real success, be it in business, science, art, sport, or any other sphere, can only be achieved by a few individuals is widely accepted as the normal state of affairs. Nobody seems to question it or consider it abnormal. There is no point in you and I trying to save humanity. I simply wish to suggest that you, dear pilgrim, ask yourself the following question. Why him and not me? What do I have to do to become one of the chosen few? I am not the Wizard of Oz and so cannot create magic rituals for you. I will simply answer the question directly. You already have everything you need. All you have to do is use it. You are capable of anything. It is just that no one has told you this yet. You are capable of creating incredible works of art, making unique discoveries, achieving phenomenal results in sport, business, and any other profession. All you have to do is turn to your heart, for the heart has access to all knowledge, as well as the previous achievements of all humanity. You just have not asked your heart yet. All great geniuses of art, science, and business have only succeeded in creating masterpieces because they turned to their hearts. What makes your heart any worse than theirs? Nothing. All masterpieces speak to us in the language of the heart. Whatever you do, your work will only create an impression if it comes from the heart. The mind can build a new house using bricks from a previous model, but no one will be astounded by the new design. The mind can make a perfect copy, but only the heart is capable of an original. All you have to do is accept the axiom that the heart has everything it needs and then give yourself the joy of making the most of it. It is incredibly simple and at the same time totally incomprehensible and still, you can allow yourself the luxury of having. The will to have depends on you alone. You can do anything. The reader may doubt what I claim to be true, and yet we rarely experience doubt when we are persuaded that we lack the necessary caliber, ability, and quality, or that we are not as worthy or as talented as others. We easily believe the statements that erect high walls on the path to our goals. So do yourself, not me, a favor, and embrace the knowing that you are worthy and do deserve the absolute best, and are capable of achieving whatever you desire with all your heart. The fact that everyone is worthy of the best and capable of anything is meticulously hidden from us. We are told we are naive to believe we have unlimited capabilities, but the opposite is true. Wake up and shake off the delusion. You can dictate the rules of the game if you consciously exercise your rights. No one can forbid you from trying, but the conventional worldview and pendulums will try to convince you in every way possible that your goal is unattainable. There will be all kinds of reasonable arguments put forward to prove that your capabilities are limited. Ignore these arguments and shield yourself with the unreasonable and frivolous conviction that together your heart and mind are capable of anything. After all, you have nothing to lose. For what have you really achieved living within the framework of those other reasonable arguments? You only have one life. Is it not time to shake up the pile of commonly held beliefs? 
What if they turn out to be false and you would never have known? Do it now. Otherwise, you will not have time to find out whether they are true or not. Life will pass you by. All the possibilities will have been exhausted and the gifts of this miraculous life given to others. And perhaps indeed they will only be given to a few, but nonetheless they will not come to you. Only you can decide whether you want to fully exercise your rights or not. If you can allow yourself to have something, you will achieve it. Begin by believing in the unlimited possibilities of the heart and then turning your mind around to face it. False beliefs make this more difficult to do, but the transurfing model helps to deconstruct many erroneous ideas. One of these beliefs stands as follows. It is hardest of all to overcome the self, or it is hardest of all to battle with the self, or the predatory Russian saying, you have to be able to stamp on the throat of your own song, i.e., sacrifice your own desires and act in the interests of others. This is one of humanity's greatest delusions. How can one possibly battle with the amazingly beautiful creature that lives within you? And what would be the point? Negativity does not live within. It lies on the surface like a layer of dust on the surface of a painting. If you wipe the dust away, a pure heart is revealed underneath. The creature that hides behind many different masks and costumes is imbued with truly wonderful qualities. The task is to allow yourself to be you. Surely the masks you wear are not capable of achieving success, abundance, and happiness. It is futile to try and change yourself because all you do is create another mask. If you remove the masks destructive pendulums force us to wear, you will reveal the treasure that is hidden in your heart. You really do deserve the best because you really are an amazing, unique, special being. Just allow yourself to be so. If you admire the geniuses of the art world, science, or cinema, know that you too can join their ranks. The reason the work of a genius appeals to you so much is because these creative works are born of the heart. What you choose to create will please others just the same, as long as it originates from the uniqueness of your soul. Everything that is ordinary and mediocre is created by the mind. There is nothing unsurpassable about the mind or its creations. You carry a real treasure within you, for the heart is unique. Only the heart can produce an ingenious creation. Make sure the mind allows it to do so. The Mirage All their lives, people are forced to believe that success, wealth, and fame only befall the chosen few. At university, in tournaments, competitions, and similar events, people are constantly made to understand that they are far from perfect and that other people are better and more deserving than they are. The ones who achieve success, wealth, and fame and abundance are the ones who do not buy into the deception. It's that simple. It might be difficult to believe that everyone deserves these things and is capable of achieving them, but you can begin to believe if it is your intention. Many people dream of becoming a star and achieving huge success, and the general standards for success are actively and widely promoted. The pendulums love to demonstrate the achievements of their favorites to the silent majority. They introduce their favorites as an example of the success we should all strive for if we want to reap the full-range benefits life has to offer. A star has everything the life can give swimming in the rays of wealth and fame. Who would not want to be rich and famous? Even if you do not particularly want to be a huge success and are not the type that hankers after material luxury, you probably would not turn down the chance of material well-being 
and fulfillment from personal achievement. Stars are born independently, but they are lit up by pendulums. By this I mean that star worship is intentionally set up and flourishes thanks to pendulums. In films, on stage, in stadiums, and on TV, we are constantly being shown the society's best representatives, the chosen ones. The way the fans greet the stars with such ravish admiration is always emphasized, and we cannot but see how incredible they are and how phenomenal their achievements. The same immutable fact is always being instilled. Everyone loves the stars, and we must strive to be like them. What aim are the pendulums pursuing by putting their favorites on pedestals? Could it be that they are concerned for the personal achievements and well-being of their adherents? Indeed not. Pendulums demonstrate the achievements of their favorites so that the majority of adherents are stimulated to serve them even more conscientiously. For how does your average Joe Blow become a star if not by hard work? Stars are the best of the best. Anyone can become a star, but they have to work really hard. The stars are a good example. Do what they do, and you will be successful. The stars also have unique abilities and qualities that the ordinary person does not have, which is all the more reason for them to labor intensely if they want to be a success. These are the slogans the pendulums use. They do not deny the fact that anyone can be successful, but they do carefully hide the fact that everyone without exception has unique qualities and abilities. It would mean certain death for pendulums if every individual were to discover their own remarkable abilities. If the adherents were to become free, escaping the control exerted over them, the pendulum would simply disintegrate. The pendulum is most comfortable when its adherents are thinking and acting in the same way. As you may remember from the second chapter, the pendulum's very origin and survival depends on the uniformity of its adherents' thinking. The star's colorful individuality is supposedly an exception and serves to prove the rule by the very fact of being an exception. The rule is, do what I do. This is why many young people fall into the pendulum's trap, striving to be like their idols, copying them and hanging up posters of them on their bedroom walls. The mind blindly follows the pendulum. Thoughtless reason tells the heart that she is less than perfect, as if by saying, even with my superb abilities, success is beyond me, so you have no chance. These people, now that's a different story. Look at them. We need to learn from them. Sit there quietly in your imperfection while I try as hard as I can to become their copy. The younger generation emulates their idols as if they are trying to catch hold of a mirage. The desire to emulate the success of others is the work of inner intention, like the fly beating itself against the window pane. They are effectively attuning to a foreign sector of the field in which they would be nothing more than a parody. The mind can create various versions of a copy, but they will never astound anyone. A person becomes a star because of their willingness to be different and their own unique individuality. The soul of every living being is inimitable in its own way. A unique soul has its own sector in the alternative space where its exceptional qualities can be manifest in all their magnificence. Every soul has its own individual star sector in the information field. It is clear that there may be an infinite number of star sectors, but for the purposes of the explanation, we will conditionally assume that the individual soul has one unique sector of the field in the form of an individual goal or path. Distracted by the lure of the pendulum, the mind will senselessly stagnate in someone else's star sector, trying to copy their qualities 
or repeat the script of their success. Copying someone else's script always creates a parody. The heart's potential can never be fully realized in a sector that does not belong to it. So how do you find your true sector? There is no need for the mind to worry about this because when left unhindered, the heart will find the path of self-expression. The mind's task is to forget about other people's experience, to acknowledge the heart's extraordinary nature, and to allow it to find its own path. Teenagers are particularly susceptible to the influence of pendulums because they are still new to the world and do not yet know what to do or how to behave. It is easier, more reliable, and safer to mix in with the crowd, living life in the same way as everyone else, rather than to stand out for any particular reason. The crowd instinct provides a feeling of security, but fundamentally severs the buds from the stem of individuality. You will have noticed how the majority of young people dress in the same style, use the same vocabulary, a.k.a. wicked, cool, and behave quite consistently with each other. Despite their superficial gloss of independence and autonomy, they submissively follow the pendulum's rule to do as I do. They believe they embody the modernism of the contemporary generation, but who among them would actually risk creating and valorizing the new? Among the teenage population, it is always the few that have given themselves permission to reveal the hidden qualities of the soul that become the leaders and the mavericks. It is these few who develop their own individuality that later become the trendsetters, the ones who set the tone to create new movements and chase new opportunities and prospects. They do not copy other people or religiously obey the rules. They allow themselves to realize the distinctive qualities of their own soul. Pendulums will not ordinarily put up with any expression of individuality, but in the case of the upcoming star, they are left with no choice but to accept them as a favorite. Then the next round of favorites is put on a pedestal and spotlighted as new models for the adherent masses to worship. There is nothing wrong with a young boy wanting to be strong like his hero or a girl wanting to be beautiful like her heroine. But they should not copy them or, for example, set themselves the task of building the same muscles, acquiring the same way of moving, talking, singing, or playing as someone else. The reason we like these people is because they have realized their own unique qualities right within their own sector of the alternative's space. Of course, there should be some kind of initial role model that can serve as an example like a demonstration copy, but not as a yardstick or template to be emulated. Your yardstick is your soul. Simply allow it to explore all its qualities within your current sector. It is better to put a photograph of yourself up on the wall and admire that than someone else's image. Loving yourself is extremely beneficial and constructive. Loving yourself leads to self-approval and is only punishable by balanced forces if accompanied by disregard for others. You really are a unique individual, and in this sense, no one can compete with you. Just give yourself permission to be yourself. There can be no competitors to your personal uniqueness. Remember that you have a right to your own individuality, and you will have a huge advantage over those who try to copy the experience of others. You will not get anywhere by striving to become like a him or a her. Become yourself. Allow yourself this luxury. While you wear the mask of an existing star, at most you will be a copy, and at worst, a parody. Stars do not become stars by copying other people. When you give up on futile attempts to be like someone else, everything will work out. Likewise, 
When you cease futile attempts to repeat other people's scripts, everything will work out. When you acknowledge the brilliance of your own individuality, other people will have no option but to agree with you. Allow yourself to be presumptuous enough to have. All great actors play themselves. This might seem strange because the roles they play differ, but personality, character, and charm give an actor away immediately. The hardest role to play is the one where you play yourself and allow yourself to remove the mask and be yourself. It is much easier to play someone else because putting on a mask is comparatively easy, and the actor will have the professional skills to pull the role off. It is infinitely more difficult to remove the mask, but if you can take off the mask, what ensues is not role play, but what they call life on the stage. It only seems difficult, but in fact deciding to have is quite straightforward. All it requires is for you to shake off the stereotypes imposed by pendulums and once and for all claim belief in the infinite possibilities of your own soul. There is nothing pendulums can do to stop you if you reject the experience of others and give yourself permission to be a star. All they can do is imbue you with oppressive thoughts like, a star has to be beautiful and I am not beautiful. A star has to be able to sing well, act, and dance, but I cannot. A star has to have talent which I do not have. I have not got what it takes. I am better of watching how other people do it. Do take a good look at the stars of the pop, science, sporting, and business worlds. Many, if not all, fail to meet the perfect standards and expectations of what a star should look like. Every celebrity has their own bundle of flaws that could potentially eclipse their positive traits. For example, one star has a long nose, but people still think she is beautiful. Another star cannot sing, but people are mad about her songs. Another has no acting ability, and all the directors have sent her packing, but she still climbed the ranks of celebrities. Another is short and fat, and you can only guess why the women love him so much. Another is a right nobody. Just what do people see in him? You look at another, and he turns out to be really nondescript. You ask yourself, could he really be famous? Individuality does not fit with the rule, do as I do. But you will agree that individuality is an essential prerequisite for the birth of a star. So a bright personality breaks the rule and the pendulums have to acknowledge them as an exception, while the other stereotypes remain in force. All stars are exceptions. You too will become an exception from the conventional stereotypes. You can sing with a well-trained voice and languish in obscurity, or sing terribly but in your own curious manner and everyone will love it. You may boast brilliant intellectual abilities and never achieve anything, while the pathetic C-pupil, who is constantly harping about his mad ideas in the end, makes a brilliant discovery. You may have outstanding physical qualities but never become a sports star, whereas the one who dares to break the conventional stereotype leads the game on the field in an unexpected way and ends up the golden player. I will not continue the list of contradicted stereotypes. You understand the principle. Do not be afraid of breaking the pendulum stereotypes and find the boldness to direct your mind's attention towards your own unique and admittable soul. Watch out that you do not get caught up on another pendulum hook by being provoked into chasing after someone else's goal. This will only lead to disappointment. What good is another person's goal? Listen to your heart and not your mind. Your heart knows best of all where you can shine like a star. There is a law in the world of pendulums which has it that only the occasional few may become a favorite 
and everyone else must fulfill the function of ordinary adherence and observe the rules of the system. Transurfing cannot get rid of this law, but it can help you personally to break away from it. Then if you make the most of the unique qualities of your soul, the pendulums will be obliged to include you among their favorites. Guardian Angels Many people believe that they have a guardian angel who helps them. If you believe in your personal guardian angel, that is wonderful because it means that it exists. When you think about your guardian angel, turn to it with confidence and be grateful and you can be sure that these thoughts make your angel real. There is nothing that cannot exist in the alternative space. You may even believe that thoughts can create an independent informational energetic being if it pleases you to do so. The more sincerely you love your angel and express your gratitude for any small thing it helps you with, the stronger the little angel will become and the more it will support you. Ultimately, it does not really matter whether the angel exists independently or whether it is created by your thoughts. There is nothing wrong with not believing in guardian angels either. If you do not feel the need for a guardian angel, you obviously feel comfortable and good about your life, which is great. In the end, you get what you believe in. Although, if I was you, I would believe in my guardian angel. What if guardian angels do exist irrespective of whether you believe in them or not? What if they love us, look after us as best they can, but we have forgotten them and turned away from them? The angel might need your love and be weakened by your lack of attention. It might be drained of energy and unable to assist you while you give your energy away to destructive pendulums. Pendulums may also assist you, but only if it serves their interests. The well-being of a specific individual is of no consequence to pendulums at all, whereas your guardian angel takes care of you alone. Imagine your angel in any form, a cherub with wings, a fluffy cloud, a bird, whatever. It really does not matter how you see your angel for... Of itself, it does not actually look like anything. It only takes a specific form within your imagination, so imagine your angel in the way that you find most comfortable. You can even identify it with your soul if you want to. People with extrasensory abilities can communicate with their angel. Do not worry if you are not one of those people. Your angel will find a way of setting you on the right path. It is important not to take offense at your angel, or even worse, get angry with it. Your angel knows what to protect you from and where to send you because in comparison to your angel, you are like a blind kitten. It is not for you to reproach your angel. You have no idea of the misfortunes your angel might be bending over backwards to protect you from. There is a parable about a man who meets with God in heaven. God is showing the man his entire life's path, and the man can see from the footprints that God had been walking beside him his entire life. Then the man noticed that in the bleakest periods of life, there was only one set of footprints on the ground. The man turned to God reproachfully. Why, God, did you leave me at the times that were hardest to endure? To which God replied, You are mistaken. Those are not your footprints, but mine. In those most challenging moments, I carried you in my arms. You cannot overestimate the role of a guardian angel. Just the knowledge that there is another being who looks after and protects you as far as they are able helps to balance your confidence levels. Confidence, which generates inner calm, can play a huge role in a person's life. If you feel lonely, you can share your loneliness with your angel. Angels have yet another wonderful quality that you can benefit from. Your angel is not affected by the influence of balanced forces. If you are pleased with your success, 
Give yourself a slap on the back and be proud of yourself. This is a good thing. It is better to praise yourself too much than to be reproachful or self-critical. The only negative thing about being very pleased with yourself is that it can create excess potential. Perhaps just a little bit, but enough, and so balanced forces can end up spoiling your soul's celebration. You praise yourself, and as a result, you err or experience some unpleasantness. So does this mean that one should fear even a secret enjoyment of one's personal achievements? There is one way of taking joy and pride in one's triumphs without creating excess potential, which is to share your glee and satisfaction with your guardian angel. Your angel took care of you and helped you get there, and so it deserves your praise and gratitude. When you are relishing in the delight of a positive result and feel satisfied with yourself, remember your angel and delight in these moments together. Talk to your angel. Be unsparing in your praise and thanks. It is in fact better to praise your angel than to praise yourself. Have sincerity. Give away the gift of your right to reward wholeheartedly. You have nothing to lose because you have already received what is yours, leaving you free to thank and congratulate your angel. Consider your success to be your angel's merit. What will happen if you do? The excess potential of your pride will be dissipated, and at the same time, you can give yourself the space to celebrate in your heart without caution. Feel the joy, but give the pride away to your angel. For obviously, no one can take your achievement from you. It is better to give the reward and thanks to your angel than create the excess potential associated with pride or express your gratitude to a pendulum that has bestowed a little joy upon you. Your angel needs your energy, but it will not ask you for it. If you think you have received help from a pendulum, there is no harm in thanking the pendulum too, but be aware that the pendulum will always automatically receive a portion of your energy because with a pendulum, there is no such thing as a free lunch, ever. Whatever you do, do not neglect your angel. Remind your angel constantly that you love it and are grateful to it. It will become stronger as a result and reward you handsomely. A Soul Box Your soul came into the world wide-eyed, full of hope and trust, but the pendulums promptly picked it up and assured it that no one had been waiting to meet it. No one was particularly pleased to see it, and that it will be expected to do hard, dirty work just to earn a small crust of bread. Of course, not everyone is born into poverty, but the wealthy have their problems too, just of a different kind. In the world of pendulums, the wealthy suffer no less than the poor. Your soul did not come into the material world to suffer. It just benefits the pendulums when the battle for a place in the sun becomes the norm. As you already know, in accordance with the laws of informational and energetic matter, a pendulum emerges from the shared thoughts and actions of a group of individuals and later carries on to exist independently of the group. Via the process of informational energetic exchange, the pendulum compels adherents to its will and forces them to think and act in its own interests. Pendulums harvest human energy when emotions such as dissatisfaction, irritation, Frustration, anger, worry, and fear are expressed, and when people take in battles between other pendulums. We are accustomed to living in a world of pendulums where oppression, feud, competition, war, and many other examples of rivalry are considered par for the course. It does not occur to us that this might not be normal and that things could easily be different. 
Look at the world from the point of view of the pendulum model. If you remember all the many different manifestations of a pendulum's insatiable thirst for energy, imagine what the world might be like if they did not exist. If these types of informational energetic exchange were not taking place, there would be no structures that absorb the energy of others by drumming up rivalry. It is difficult to imagine, but in a world such as this, there would be much happiness and very little suffering. We could live in a world where there are enough natural resources and opportunities for everyone. The idea has been instilled in us that the battle for survival and natural selection is an essential process that facilitates the evolution of life. It is true that these processes do support the development of the world, albeit of an aggressive kind. However, natural selection is not an essential condition for the growth of life. Life could equally as well develop in accordance with other, more humane laws. In the world of pendulums, natural selection occurs according to a negative script by which the one who suffers loses their life. Selection relies on the methods of oppression and destruction. Have you ever wondered whether there could be a different, more positive script in which the one who feels well survives? These two scripts differ only in as much as negativity differs from positivity. One could argue that both scripts have a place in the context of natural selection, but negativity is still the predominant factor. The weakest one dies. Whatever the case may be, the system that pendulums have established in the human world is far harsher than any system supported by nature. The battle for survival as it occurs in nature does not exhibit the same hardened and aggressive features that it does in the human world. The pendulums people have created are considerably more powerful and hostile than any of nature's pendulums. Just because in nature someone is always getting eaten does not mean there is a constant war going on. The lion feeds on the cow just as the cow eats the grass. Importance is a trait unique to the human being. Because plants and animals have zero understanding of importance, the law of balance is maintained. It is only because man observes natural phenomena from the human belfry of importance that the normal coexistence of living organisms is perceived to be a fierce struggle. Even animal kingdom rivalry over territory and mate is purely nominal in comparison to the constant warring of man. Animals very rarely inflict physical injury on each other unless they are hunting for prey. In the majority of cases, any conflict is decided in the best interests of the one that barks loudest and pulls the most intimidating grin, and if blood should be drawn, it is most likely because paws cannot avoid being heavy. Emotions such as anger and hatred are not characteristic of animals. Neither do they show signs of courage or cowardliness. It all comes down to survival instinct. Daring wolves and timid rabbits only exist in our imagination. We cannot change the world. We have to accept that how the world is does not depend on us. Myriad limitations and conditioning literally stuff the soul into a box. The mind captured by convention becomes the soul's jailer, prohibiting it from realizing its potential. The individual is simply forced to behave in the way the pendulum world demands, to express dissatisfaction, to get irritated, to fear, to compete, and to fight. Human thinking and behavior is determined by reliance on the pendulum world. As you have already understood from previous chapters, this type of conditioning drains a person's energy, sets balanced forces against them, and distracts them from their true path 
sending them out in search of false objectives. To top it all, outer intention manages to realize our worst expectations. Most people would be happy to free themselves of conditioning and dependency, they just do not know how to. Now you know that the pendulum's power relies on their adherence, importance, and lack of awareness. People are not usually aware that they are reacting to provocation. They give in to worry, fear, and frustration automatically, expressing dissatisfaction and anger out of habit. They easily succumb to gloom and will exert maximum effort when met with obstacles. People live as if in a dream, complying with the script enforced by pendulums. They are oblivious to the fact that they can take control of the script, believing that very little depends on their own actions. Importance sucks people into the pendulum's game, and lack of awareness deprives them of their final chance to shape the script. The game is played by the pendulum's rules. As you can see, sometimes I repeat the same point several times. This is because although the insights set forth in this book might seem obvious, the conventional pendulum-constructed worldview is so deeply rooted in the human psyche that they can be difficult to feel and comprehend in their full depth and entirety. You can, however, break out of the box of conditioning if you follow the principles of transurfing. The power of the pendulums is great, but as long as you abandon importance, their power is insufficient to prevent you from consciously exercising your right to choose and to write the scripts in your life. It is in the pendulum's interest to keep people under control so that they can pursue their own goals. To the pendulums, the individual is just an instrument, a means to an end, a puppet. Your soul came into this world as to a celebration, so go ahead and give yourself permission to have this experience. Only you can decide whether you want to spend your entire life working for the good of someone else's pendulum or living for your own enjoyment. If you chose to live life as a celebration, it is essential that you free yourself from the pendulums that bind and seek out your own goal in your own doorway. Your mind has to understand that you do not owe destructive pendulums anything and are not obligated to do their bidding. Establish union between the heart and the mind, and you will have anything you could wish for, literally and figuratively. All you have to do is free yourself from pendulums and soften the discord that exists between your heart and mind. Allow yourself the luxury of deserving the best. If someone tries to persuade you that you must work for the good of someone or something else, do not believe them. If someone tries to persuade you that you must work for the good of someone or something else, do not believe them. If someone tries to prove to you that everything in life comes through hard work alone, do not believe them. If someone is imposing a harsh battle on you to secure your place in the sun, do not believe them. If they try to tell you what your place is, do not believe them. If someone tries to draw you into religious sect or community because you can make an essential contribution to the common goal, do not believe them. If they tell you that you have to live your entire life in poverty because that is how you were born, do not believe them. If they tell you that you have limited options, do not believe them. You will soon see that pendulums will not leave you alone that easily. As soon as shoots of your will to have begin to show themselves, pendulums will create a situation designed to force you to accept that your options are limited. The moment you feel strong enough to choose and determine the script yourself, pendulums will upset your plans. As soon as you begin to feel calm and confident, they will get their claws in you. 
Do not respond to provocation and do not let them shake you off balance. Keep the importance you attribute to things to a minimal level and be conscious of your actions. Keeping importance at zero is what the situation calls for, not massive effort and tenacity. In this game, the only limitation on your options is your personal intention, and the only limitation that can be placed on the pendulum's options are your zero importance level and conscious awareness. Remember, if I am empty, there is nothing for the pendulum to hook into. If I am aware of the meaning of the game, pendulums will not be able to enforce their scripts on me. If they still manage to disappoint you, upset you, or throw you off balance, take a good look at where you have attributed inflated importance. Change your relationship to whatever threw you off balance in the first place. Try to be consciously aware of the fact that it is the pendulum and not you that is desperate for importance. The box that inhibits your soul is made from the importance you attribute to things. Do not attribute excessive importance to anything. You must simply take what is yours calmly and without insistence. If it does not work, do not make that important either. The pendulums are just waiting for your spirits to fall. If something distresses you, make it seem less important. Be aware that it is just a game, and precisely that, a game! And not a fight, for in essence the pendulums are like clay pigeons. The game is harsh and relies on human weakness. The moment you give any slack to importance, you lose. If you keep importance at zero, the pendulums fall through your emptiness and the clay golem disintegrates. You will source strength in the awareness that you understand the rules of the game. As soon as you notice that a pendulum is trying to hook into you and knock you off balance, have a chuckle to yourself and adamantly reduce the level of importance. Gradually, this will become a habit, and when it does, you will feel your strength and understand that you can determine the script yourself. By winning the pendulum game, you beget freedom of choice. Frail Until now, we've been talking about how sectors of the alternative space have specific characteristics or parameters. For the sake of simplicity, we agreed to consider these characteristic frequencies. If when there is unity between heart and mind, the frequency of your thought energy corresponds to the frequency of a sector in the alternative space, the power of outer intention will facilitate your transition to that same sector. In other words, the scripts and scenery of the sector in question will become materialized in the layer of your physical world. The soul also has a unique range of parameters which in the context of transurfing is referred to as frail. Again, for the sake of the simplicity of the model, we will consider the soul's frail its characteristic frequency. Everyone's frail is unique like the structure of a snowflake. No two are the same. The frail characterizes the unique and incomparable essence of a person's soul. We can only guess at the form frail takes because it manifests implicitly, hidden under the masks of the intellect, which every individual wears. For this reason, there would not be much point in going into this notion more deeply here. It is beyond doubt, however, that every individual has a unique soul essence. You can describe the character, habits, manner, and appearance of a person you know, and yet there will still be something else beyond the characteristics, an integral image of that person that you understand without words. It is this individual's essence that requires no explanation that we call frail. You may have come across people who emanate an elusive and indefinable charm. 
Surprisingly, they may be relatively unattractive in their outward appearance, and as yet, as soon as they begin to speak, you immediately forget their physical shortcomings and are entirely spellbound. When asked wherein lies that person's charm, you can only mutter, there is something about them, finding no other explanation. Such people are extremely rare. If there are none in your circle of acquaintances, look for them among the stars in show business. The hallmark of these personalities is the exceptional beauty and charm which seems to radiate from the depths of their soul. You will immediately recognize that their beauty is different to a doll-like beauty, for doll-like beauty is purely external and corresponds to conventional, established standards. From the point of view of frail, the secret of this type of charming beauty lies not in the fact that a person has a beautiful heart or other special spiritual quality. You will come to accept, or not as you wish, another paradox of the transurfing view. Beauty lies not in the heart or soul, but rather in the harmonious connection between heart and soul. No one who has not yet learned to love themselves who is self-critical, begrudges their work, lives in mental turmoil, or at odds with their own soul can ever radiate the beauty of charm. Conflict between the heart and mind is reflected in a person's outward appearance and their character. If a person is happy and has learned to love themselves, if they enjoy life and do what they want to do, then they will exude a certain inner light which indicates that the mind is attuned to the soul's frail. Unity between heart and mind equates thought energy with the nature of outer intention. Self-fulfillment and a balanced relationship between heart and mind generate something very similar. Inner peace ignites an inner light that reminds the heart of its true nature, which is why the beauty of harmony is interpreted as charm or spiritual beauty. This kind of beauty sometimes evokes hidden envy and people ask, How come you look so radiant? The heart is not at peace when the mind is suffocating it in a case, but when it is caressing the heart like a rose, admiring it and caring for it, allowing every petal to open freely, this is that rare thing we call happiness. Frail can manifest in the form of a hobby or other pursuit, and anything that is done with love and enthusiasm. Often the strings of the frail rest silent for a long time. Sometimes a sign of some kind will cause a string to sound. It could be an unexpected passing comment that for some reason strikes a chord in your soul or something you see that has special magnetism that immediately draws you to it and you begin to sense a vaguely perceptible urging over and over. This is the outer intention of the soul working. But since it is a vague yearning, outer intention works without a specific aim. It is important to listen to the dictates of your heart so that the mind can pick up on them then you can catch hold of outer intention and quickly achieve your desire. What prevents the mind from entering into a relationship with the heart? Once again, importance is the problem along with our old friends, the pendulums, that install false aims and values. As we said earlier, it is pendulums that set the standards of our notions of beauty, success, and abundance, and inner and outer importance that motivate the individual to compare themselves with these standards. Naturally, the mind finds a bundle of shortcomings and starts to hate itself, and consequently, the heart too. It tries on all sorts of masks, trying to make the frail fit the standards, but as a rule, nothing good comes of it. As a result, the rift that exists between heart and mind widens. How then can there be any question of inner peace? The mind waters its rose with reproach and dissatisfaction, and the rose becomes even more feeble.
The mind will search for treasure anywhere except in its own heart. Pendulums tout loudly and seductively while the heart tries quietly and delicately to make its abilities and inclinations known. The mind does not listen to the heart and tries to change frail. Naturally, nothing good comes of this either. As a result, the heart and mind converge in their decision to negate these imaginary imperfections. Outer intention immediately transfers the individual to a lifeline where hostility intensifies because the imperfections have literally materialized. The mind assumes that if it wears a correcting mask, it will be able to meet the established standards. As you know, this is fruitless like chasing after a mirage. Rather than making the most of the frail's precious uniqueness, people beat against the window pane, chasing after the success of another. And yet the star's success is born from having attuned the mind to frail. The one hunting the mirage achieves nothing and is deeply dissatisfied with self. No one can ever reach a lifeline where they accept themselves and feel fulfilled by expressing fundamental dissatisfaction with the self. The parameters of their energy field will simply correspond to lifelines where they have even more reason to feel unfulfilled. This is the game that pendulums inflict upon us. It appears senseless, but from the pendulum's standpoint, the game has a very definite meaning. Dissatisfaction and a lack of fulfillment are their favorite dishes. How can you attune the mind to the heart's frail? The only way is to convince the mind that above all, the heart is worthy of love. You have to first love yourself, and only then pay attention to the virtues of others. Love for the self should not be confused with self-satisfaction, vanity, or complacency. Complacent self-satisfaction comes from considering oneself superior to others and creates dangerous excess potential. To love yourself means to understand your own uniqueness and accept yourself the way you are, warts and all. The love you have for yourself must be unconditional, otherwise it will turn into excess potential. Surely you are worthy of your own love, for you are the only one there is of you. If a person has gone too far in the battle with their frail, it will be difficult for them to just up and love themselves. How can I love myself if I do not even like myself? This is pure excess potential born of increased inner and outer importance. Outer importance lies in the fact that I take someone else's standards to be the immutable truth. Perhaps I am valuing the virtues of others too highly. Internal importance lies in the fact that I force myself to follow other people's standards. Who said that I am any less than they are? I am just me. Could my self-esteem be too low? To learn to love yourself, shake outer importance off its pedestal, and give up worshipping other people's standards. Who is stopping you from creating your own standards? Let others chase after your standards. Release inner importance and let yourself go. You are not obliged to follow or live up to people's standards. You have to remain aware of the fact that the pendulums need importance, not you. When you love your heart with all your mind, outer intention will carry you to a lifeline where you will be totally accepting of yourself. If you like yourself, no matter what, you will succeed in deceiving outer intention and reveal qualities you never suspected having. When your thought energy radiates at the frequency of self-acceptance and self-fulfillment, outer intention will pick you up and carry you onto lifelines where you really do have something to be proud of. One of the commandments says, Love your neighbor as yourself. For some reason, everyone seems to focus on the necessity to love your neighbor, 
but the commandment presupposes that one already has love for the self. Leave the game enforced by the pendulums and begin to love yourself starting today. Buy yourself a favorite treat and have a personal party. Give yourself some tender, loving care. Some may maliciously continue, Indulge in all your weaknesses and bad habits. But this is the demagoguery of pendulums, and I see no reason why I should debate with them. You already know what it means to love the self. Weaknesses and bad habits are only induced by pendulums. There is no need to set out in search of the Holy Grail somewhere in the depths of the jungle. The Holy Grail is within you. It is the frail of your soul. Unity of Heart and Mind The heart comes into the world trustingly, reaching out with a child's arms. Then it discovers that pendulums have conquered the world and transformed it into a jungle. Pendulums immediately try and convince the heart that no one was expecting it and that in this world everyone has to fight for a place under the sun and pay tribute to the pendulums. The naive, direct heart must be put in its place straight away. The heart is told that no one is interested in her desires, that there is more suffering than happiness in the world, that holidays are only held on prearranged dates, and that it will have to work extremely hard just to earn a crust of bread. That is it. The heart is crestfallen. The eyes well up with tears of despair, or the heart is increasingly indignant. That's not right. It's not fair. The hackles are up, and it looks as if the only choice is to plod dejectedly along a path enforced by pendulums or scratch away desperately in an attempt to pursue one's own goals. The pendulums take hold of the mind on all levels, mental, emotional, and energetic. The conventional worldview and human behavioral responses are also shaped by pendulums. People think and act in a way that is advantageous to them. The heart, like the mind, also ends up in the conditioning box. There is an element of conditioning in literally everything. People have come to terms with the limitations placed on them and play their role in the game that has been forced upon them. In conditions such as these, the heart gradually retreats to the back burner while the mind takes the reins into its own hands. The mind counsels the heart as if it were a small, unreasonable child. I know better than you what needs to be done. Your foolish babble makes no sense. In the majority of people, the heart shrinks into a frightened, powerless creature that is left in the corner mournfully observing all the frantic mind gets up to. Sometimes moments of union between heart and mind occur. In these moments, the heart sings and the mind rubs its hands in satisfaction. But such moments are rare. More often than not, agreement between the heart and mind arises in moments of negation, fear, and hatred. The heart is given no voice in issues of choice. The mind treats the heart as if it were a child asking for a toy in a shop. The mind usually answers in the standard fashion that sounds, We cannot afford it. And with that, the dream is instantly nipped in the bud. Look at what happens. The child needs the toy now. If you genuinely cannot afford to buy the child the toy, there is nothing wrong with refusing the child their desire. But the heart is willing to wait. And yet the mind places a crucifix on the entire situation with the conviction of an idiot. We do not have enough money. It turns out that the dream is fundamentally unattainable in principle. The mind has a logic imposed by pendulums who gain from keeping adherence on a leash 
denying them even the freedom to choose their own dream. The heart has no logic and understands everything literally. The mind insists that there is not enough money, and yet the heart is not asking for money. It's asking for a toy. Arguing that there is no money, the mind places a taboo on the toy. It is unrealistic, elusive, and the heart has nothing else except to close up inside and not mention the toy again. And the dream's funeral is over. The mind cannot see how to realize the dream, and so will not let it into the layer of its physical life. For in life, everything should be logical and clear. The mind should have agreed to having the toy, and then outer intention would have taken care of how to find the money for it. However, the worldview constructed by pendulums does not allow for such miracles. That adherence should have freedom of choice just does not fit with the pendulum's interests. People erroneously accept the rational worldview as an immutable law. This law, however, is a sham and can easily be deconstructed. Sometimes in life, little inexplicable miracles happen. So why not allow one of these miracles into your own life? All you have to do is allow yourself to have what the heart desires. If you brush away the web of prejudice and limitation the pendulums weave around us and genuinely believe that you deserve your dream and allow yourself to have what you desire, it will come to you. Allowing yourself to have is the most important condition for wishes to come true. The mind has other responses for the heart in the toy shop as well that sound, Do not be silly. I know what you need better than you do. We are a simple people. It is not possible. Not everyone can have these things. You do not have the right qualities or abilities. You can hardly compare yourself with him or her. Just live like everyone else does, etc., etc. If it were not for the impact of pendulums as a mitigating factor, one would accuse the mind of extreme stupidity. One can only hope that on reading these lines, it will wake up from its tenacious illusion and comprehend the absurdity of its quote-unquote reasonable arguments. Without the heart, the mind is not capable of very much at all, and yet together, the heart and mind are capable of almost anything, because their merging generates the magical power of outer intention. The mind governs internal intention, and the heart governs outer intention. Without help, the heart is not able to direct outer intention in a goal-orientated manner, and yet when the heart and mind merge, outer intention becomes controllable, and can be used in pursuit of specific goals. Everything that you think is unattainable is indeed impossible to achieve via internal intention, which is governed by the mind. No one is arguing against that. Whatever goal you set yourself, I agree that it would probably be hard to achieve within the limits of a rational worldview. And yet, why should you have to walk away from your dreams simply because some puffed-up authority claimed the right to determine what is real and what is not? Why should not you claim your right to a personal miracle? The secret of happiness is just as straightforward as the secret of unhappiness. In both cases, it comes down to unity or disunity between the heart and mind. The older a person gets, the greater the discord becomes. The mind succumbs to the influence of pendulums, making the heart unhappy. In childhood, the heart still hopes that someone will give it the toy it wants so badly. But with time, hope fades. The mind finds more and more confirmation that the dream is difficult to achieve and puts off realizing it until later. Usually, the putting off till later lasts for a lifetime. 
Life comes to an end, and the dream is stored away in a dusty box. In order to achieve unity between heart and mind, first of all, one has to determine what exactly there should be agreement on, i.e., identify one's goals. Despite seeming obvious, this question is not as trivial as it might first appear. As a rule, people know exactly what they do not want, but find it difficult to express their true desires. This can be explained by the fact that pendulums strive to subdue people enough to impose their own false goals upon them. There can be no question of unity of heart and mind if the mind is chasing after a seductive mirage and the heart longs for something else entirely. On top of that, people are so intensely busy and concerned with carrying out various types of work for pendulums that they have no time to simply sit quietly and consider their true desires. You have to deliberately set aside time and remember what your heart longed for in childhood. What did you like? What did you want? What really attracted you and what dreams did you have to give up on over time? Ask yourself, does the goal from that distant past still attract you? Think about what you really want. Could it be a false goal? Do you really desire it with all your heart or do you really just want to desire it? When you think about your goal, you must reduce inner and outer importance. If outer importance is heightened, the goal will appear seductively prestigious and unattainable. Are you sure you have not been caught on a pendulum's hook? If internal importance is heightened, you will think the goal is beyond your capabilities. In this case, you will again be attracted to the goal because it appears unattainable. Do you really need it? When considering your goal, do not think about whether it is prestigious. Shake the goal from the pedestal of unattainability. This will reduce outer importance. Likewise, when you are thinking about your goal, do not think about how to achieve it. This will reduce inner importance. Only think about how comfortable you feel. Imagine how you would feel if you had already reached your goal. Do you genuinely feel good about it? Or is it like a heavy weight on your heart? Doubting whether your desired goal is realistic or not does not mean that it is not needed. The important thing is that your heart sings when you think about your innermost goal. However attractive something might appear to you, if it evokes a heavy feeling in your heart, the goal could be false. We will look at all these questions in more detail in the next chapter. If you have no specific goal and do not desire anything in particular, you either have a weak life force or your mind has finally driven your heart into its box. In the first case, you can increase your vitality by looking after your health better. It might be that you do not truly know what good health is. When a person is in good health, life is pleasurable, and they want to experience everything all at once. The heart is incapable of not wanting anything because for the heart, this life is a unique opportunity. In the second case, you only have one option, which is to love yourself. Might you have gone a little overboard looking after everyone else? Put yourself first. You cannot do anyone any good if your own heart has been pushed onto the back burner. You can waste your entire life sacrificing yourself to serve others, even if it is for the sake of those closest to you, to say nothing of pendulums. We are not given this life to serve others. We are given this life to realize our own individual potential. Shutting away your heart in a box creates powerful excess potential in the shape of a hidden lack of inner fulfillment which will spill out in all kinds of trials and tribulations for yourself and those close to you. 
you will think that you are doing good deeds, whereas in fact, from a wider perspective, all those good deeds are to the greater detriment. Look after yourself tenderly, attentively, and enthusiastically. Then your soul will be warmed through and spread its wings. Do not believe anyone who tells you that you have to change yourself in order to be successful. No doubt you have heard such things said. This is the pendulum's favorite recipe. Apparently, if something is not working, you have to work on yourself. What do the pendulums mean when they say that you should change? They mean turn away from yourself, face the pendulums, and follow the rule, do as I do, in order to fulfill their demands and act in their interests. In order to change yourself, you have to struggle to overcome yourself. What question can there be of unity of heart and mind if you cannot accept or love yourself and are in conflict with your inner self? The soul will not accept false claims. It has its own inclinations and needs. When you work towards false goals, you either end up achieving nothing, or when you arrive at your destination, you finally understand that it was not where you wanted to be after all. Transurfing has no relationship to pendulums and so recommends a completely different path. Do not change yourself, accept yourself. Turn away from the husks the pendulums impose and lure the mind's attention toward your heart. Listen to the dictates of the heart consciously, reducing importance as you go. Allow yourself to have and you will receive anything your heart desires. To bring your heart and mind to unity, you have to pay attention more often to your level of inner peace. You feel comfortable, calm, and at peace when nothing is worrying you or getting you down. Inner tension signals the opposite. You feel uneasy, oppressed, afraid, you feel down, or something is weighing on you. If these are the feelings that arise and you know what is causing them, then the tension begins in the mind. As a rule, the mind knows what is frightening, worrying, or oppressing it, and so you can rely on the mind to find a solution. The heart's tension is a little more complicated because the discomfort is manifest vaguely. The mind will insist that everything is fine, that everything is going as it should, and there is no need for concern. And yet, despite all these reasonable arguments, you know that something is getting you down. This is the rustle of the morning stars. It is not difficult to hear the voice of the heart. The task lies simply in paying more attention to it. The mind, with its logical reasoning, sounds too loudly for the individual to attach any meaning to a vague and elusive presentiment. Absorbed in its own logical analysis and prognosis of events, the mind simply is not in the mood to listen to the feelings of the heart. There is no other way of learning how to listen to the rustle of the morning stars than to develop the habit of paying attention to your level of inner peace. Every time you have to make a decision, first listen to the voice of reason, and then the feelings of the heart. As soon as the mind has made a decision, the heart will react to it either positively or negatively. In the case of the latter, you will experience a vague feeling of inner tension. If you forget to pay attention to your level of inner peace until it is too late, try and remember in retrospect which feelings the decision evoked. You will have experienced a fleeting feeling precisely at the moment the decision was made. In this moment, the mind was so involved in analyzing the situation that it was too busy to take note of any whispering from the heart. Now try and remember what this first fleeting feeling felt like. If it was an oppressive feeling on the background of the mind's optimistic reasoning, 
This is the heart's way of saying no. To what extent can you trust the presentiments of the heart? If you think you have experienced a premonition of a particular event that is going to happen, it is not advisable to place too much trust in these feelings. There is no guarantee that the mind will correctly interpret the information the heart is providing. Only a feeling of inner tension in response to a decision made by the mind can serve as a reliable guideline. A feeling of inner peace, however, is not necessarily a guarantee that the heart is saying yes. It might be that the heart simply has no particular response to your decision. Yet, when the heart says no, you will feel it distinctly. As you know from the material in previous chapters, the soul is capable of seeing sectors in the alternative space that will be transformed into physical reality as a result of an intellectual decision being put into action. When the heart sees the result, it will express its response to it as positive or negative. You will know from your own experience that when the heart says no, it is always right. You now have the reliable criteria of inner tension as a way of determining the truth when you have to make a decision. If the heart says no and the mind says yes, boldly refuse if at all possible. The heart is not capable of desiring anything bad. If, however, the mind still insists that we have to, act as best you can in the circumstances. Sometimes in life we do have to accept the inevitable. In any case, the criteria for inner tension will help bring clarity and certainty to situations where the scales fluctuate. Once you have achieved unity of heart and mind on the issue of your chosen goals, the next step is to attain unity in the decision to have and act. Internal intention of the mind has to merge with outer intention of the heart. If you act within the framework of internal intention at the same time as directing outer intention in the necessary direction, you can consider that the goal is in the bag. If you are uncertain of the internal intention because you cannot see clearly how to achieve a goal, work on the decision to have. Outer intention is much stronger than internal intention, and it will find a way. You have to achieve the same unity of heart and mind over the decision to have that is present when you experience powerful emotions. The heart and mind are usually united in strong feelings such as adoration, hostility, fear, and our worst expectations. We love, hate, and fear with all our heart. When the heart and mind are united, a passionate feeling is born. As the famous Russian writer Nikolai Chernovsky said, the one who does not know how to hate will never learn to love. If the goal is chosen correctly, the heart and mind will both be satisfied. The feeling of pleasure that arises can only be marred by thoughts of how inaccessible the goal seems, or if the goal is beyond the person's individual comfort zone. Slides can help correct the situation if the mind doubts the potential reality of the goal and the heart feels bashful in the director's chair. You already know how slides work. By widening the limits of your comfort zone, you will achieve the passionate joy of unity in which the heart sings and the mind rubs its hands in glee. I repeat, when considering your goal, don't think about how prestigious it is or how achievable it is or how exactly you might achieve it. The only thing you should pay any attention to is how comfortable it makes you feel. Does thinking about it make you feel good or bad? This is the only thing that matters, otherwise you may end up confusing feelings of inhibition with feelings of inner tension. 
When faced with a challenging or unfamiliar situation, it is natural to experience some reluctance, inhibition, or shyness. You may wonder, can all this really be for me? Whereas gut feelings and inner tension are associated with dejection, chore, oppressiveness, responsibility, despondency, apprehension, and painful anxiety. If creating slides does not ease the feelings of inhibition, then what you are experiencing is clearly a negative gut feeling of inner tension. In this case, you should be totally honest with yourself and decide whether the goal really is that essential after all. Soundbite Slides Human perception can be divided into three main types, auditory, visual, and kinetic. Some people can better operate with visual images, others are more sensitive to sensation, and the third group is particularly receptive to sound. Until now, we have talked about creating slides with a preference for visual and sensory objects. Some spiritual development practices use positive affirmation, which involves a person repeating their goal as a positive statement many times over in their mind. For example, I have perfect health, a powerful energy field, and inner peace. I am calm and confident. Multiple repetitions of phrases like this spoken aloud or silently are most suited to people with auditory perception. However, there is no such thing as an absolute type, so anyone can use the positive affirmation technique successfully. Affirmations work in the same way as slides, but when you use a positive affirmation, you have to take into account the difference between the language of the heart and the language of the mind. Firstly, the heart does not understand words, and so mindless repetition will have no effect on it. The heart only understands feeling and thought which goes beyond words. Words can be used to stimulate thoughts and feelings to a certain degree, but they are not as efficient because speech is a secondary medium. It is more effective to feel something once than to repeat it a thousand times in words. Strive to experience the feeling and repeat the affirmation simultaneously. Secondly, each affirmation should have a narrow focus. There is no point in grouping several goals together in the same affirmation. For example, the affirmation cited above would seem to have great contents because it includes everything you might need in life, but you will not be able to evoke the whole set of associated sensations when you are repeating the affirmation. Thirdly, avoid humdrum monotony and uniformity. Every new series of repetitions should be accompanied by fresh elements of feeling and experience. For example, if you consistently repeat to yourself, I am calm and confident, these words will very soon lose their meaning. Desire has to be nurtured and persuaded. Intention, on the other hand, acts instantly, with confidence appearing in the moment of your intention to be confident. Therefore, if you want to be confident, be confident with intent. Finally, there is no point in creating an affirmation that fights against an effect without first eliminating the cause. For example, there is no point in repeating, I have nothing to fear and nothing to be worried about, if the cause for concern is still present in your life. Moreover, the affirmation should be designed to have a positive note. Instead of endlessly repeating what you would like to avoid, program yourself to the result you wish to achieve. For example, the negative affirmation, I am not afraid or concerned, would be more effectively replaced with a positive affirmation such as, everything is working out well for me.
Be specific about what would have to be going well for you to have no cause for concern as a result. Note also that you should say everything is working out fine and not everything will work out fine. If you write the affirmation using the future tense, the future will never become the present, being simply transformed into an oasis somewhere just ahead of you. You have to set the parameters of your energy as if you already have the thing you are ordering. Neither is there any point in ordering inner peace. Inner peace results from a harmonious connection between heart and mind on a specific issue. Harmony cannot be achieved as a general principle by abstract auto-suggestion. The heart can, however, be taught and soothed with the help of a slide. Affirmations work most effectively when you are in a zero-emotion state, i.e. when there is no excess potential. The subconscious cannot be persuaded, instructed, or ordered to do anything. As soon as you switch on any emotion, you destroy the balance. If you try to beat a thought into your brain, your heart will simply stick its fingers in its ears and ignore you. An affirmation is most effective when it is repeated dispassionately in a relaxed state. Then perhaps your mind will get through to your subconscious. If the mind has to desperately try and convince the heart of something, it means that the mind does not really believe it either, and no amount of repetition will dispel its doubts. Nothing can be achieved by the mind pressuring the heart. Neither can you generate will to have with intent when you are riding an emotional high. The things that belong to you seem mundane and you take them for granted. You handle things that are yours calmly without insistence in the same manner that you take letters out of your post box. If you mistake assertiveness for will and the intent to have, you will end up spinning circles on the spot and taking a pendulum by the hand. Before you have time to blink, the pendulum will let go of your hand and send you sliding headlong into the pit of your former indecision. When your will to have with intent is free of your desire to have, the pendulum will have nothing to hook into. As you can see, an affirmation represents a kind of sound slide. You can use affirmations and film slides, and of course, they are additionally effective when integrated into the same practice. Here is an example of an integrated slide. It contains a picture of your new home. You are sitting beside an open fire in a creaking rocking chair with the logs and the fire happily spitting and crackling away. It is so nice to sit and watch the fire. You can hear the sound of rain outside where a cold wind blows, but you are warm and cozy beside the fire. You have your favorite treat on a small table beside you and there is an interesting film on television. You see hear and sense the whole scene and say to yourself, I feel comfortable. You are not simply watching the slide, you are living it. A window onto the alternative's space. People always have controlled and uncontrolled thoughts running through their mind. Some people refer to this as the inner dialogue, but in essence it is not a dialogue but a monologue because the mind really has no one else to chat to aside from itself. The heart is not capable of thinking and talking, it only feels and knows. The inner dialogue is loud in comparison to the silent sensations of the heart, and so intuition manifests itself very rarely and is barely noticeable. Some people believe that if you can quiet the inner monologue, the mind will give you access to intuitive information. This is true, but it is not possible to switch the monologue off totally when you are in a conscious state. 
Imagine that you have concentrated on being still and have managed to relax the flow of thoughts and words. You may have no apparent thoughts, experiencing the emptiness within, but this does not mean that the monologue has been silenced. The mind is not asleep, quite the opposite, in fact. It is very alert because its task has changed. It must not think or chatter. It is as if the mind is saying, Okay, I'll be quiet. We'll see how you get along without me. That the monologue appears to have been silenced is an illusion. The inner monologue can only be truly quieted when the mind relinquishes its control or at least relaxes its vigilance. When the monologue only appears to have been stopped, the mind is still on the lookout, and you could say drowns out the feeling of the heart even more with its deafening silence. When the mind really surrenders its control, your perception falls through into the alternative space. The inner monologue is only truly muted when you are sleeping or experiencing deep meditation. This only has any practical benefit if a person practices lucid dreaming or deep meditation in which a state of consciousness is maintained. Lucid dreaming can be used as an experimental way of training the skill of outer intention. But what about in waking? Can you silence your inner dialogue when you are in a conscious state? Fortunately, there is a loophole. In moments when the mind gives some slack on its control, a narrow window spontaneously opens and through it the intuitive feelings of the heart erupt into consciousness. Intuition is felt as a vague insight, also called the inner voice. In moments when the mind is distracted, it is easy to intuit the feelings and knowledge of the heart, to hear the rustle of the morning stars, the voice without words, meditation without thought, and sound without volume. In these moments, you begin to get a sense of something, but it still has an elusive quality to it. Do not think. Feel intuitively. Everyone has experienced the thing we call intuition at some time or another in their life. For example, you get the feeling that someone is about to arrive. You sense that something is about to happen. You have an unconscious urge to do something, or you realize that there is something you just know. In the game of thinking, the referee is the mind's analytical apparatus. The mind quickly sorts any data it receives onto shelves reserved for different signs to make everything logical and rational. Silencing the inner monologue is like confiscating the referee's whistle and making him sit out the game on the reserve's bench. The mind continues to observe, but it is incapable of controlling the game. The mind occasionally takes short breaks from juggling data, as if for a brief moment sitting down on the bench for a rest. During these breaks, the window opens to intuitive information. In these moments, you fall asleep. This may be news to you, but this really is how it all works. Everyone falls asleep during the day several times. It is just that they are not aware of doing it because the window is open for a very brief instant. The dozing mind wakes up and continues with his monologue. Sometimes an impression of what was glimpsed through the window reaches the conscious mind in the form of intuitive information, but more often than not, the mind pays no attention to these brief visions because it is so engrossed in its own thoughts. In sleep, the soul can travel anywhere and flies about purposelessly, but when the window opens during waking, the heart specifically sees the sector of the alternative space that backgrounds the mind's current thoughts. The soul's gaze is directed towards the corresponding sector of the alternative space, where it sees knowledge related to the mind's current thought content. 
As soon as the window opens, this knowledge breaks through to consciousness. If on waking the mind pays attention to the impressions of the soul, i.e., remembers the short burst that took place during sleep, it will receive what is called intuitive knowledge, information that comes as if from nowhere, as if pulled out of a hat. An intuitive revelation is sometimes claimed to be a spontaneous flash of mental insight, or a solution that suddenly falls into the mind as if out of a hat, as well as a solution the mind comes to of its own accord. So where exactly does this knowledge out of nowhere come from? In the conventional worldview, people usually close their eyes to this strange type of occurrence and make allowances for it, accepting it as a quirky feature of the mind. Based on the transurfing model, we can see that inspiration works quite differently to the explanations people usually come up with. The mind finds a solution to a problem via logical inference. Revelation, i.e. the missing link that cannot be obtained from the existing chain of logic, comes from the alternative space through the medium of the heart. The subtle feelings of the heart are manifest as anxiety and depression or excitement and high emotion. All these feelings can be covered by one term, vexation. It is as if the heart is striving to communicate something to the mind, but cannot quite explain what it wants to say. Lingering anxiety, guilt, the burden of responsibility and depression can become transformed into physical reality in the shape of our worst expectations. In all these feelings, there is unity of heart and mind. Our worst expectations become a reality due to outer intention. We know that misfortune never comes alone. With these energy parameters, we shift onto the worst lifelines where misfortune has no chance of getting lonely. Sometimes an induced shift shoves us into a run of bad luck that takes us a long time to free ourselves from. You will notice that when you experience the state of lingering anxiety, your worst expectations are immediately realized. Outer intention moves you onto unsuccessful lifelines where the situation escalates before your very eyes. The heart actually helps to materialize the misfortune it has foreseen because it is united with the mind over its worst expectations. You can turn outer intention to your advantage by establishing unity of heart and mind on the question of your best expectation. Transurfing recommends abandoning importance and negativity and consciously directing your thought energy toward the achievement of your goal. As you're already aware, the conscious use of slides can help attune your thought energy and the same technique can be applied when the window opens as long as you can catch the moment. Intuitive knowledge and premonitions come to us spontaneously. When this happens, the mind uses the heart's capacity for premonition in standby mode. It simply receives information from the sector the soul has randomly wandered into. So our task is to learn to generate intuitive premonitions intentionally in order to set the heart's sail in the right direction. How is this done? Rather than simply being intuited, the premonition must intentionally be induced. You have to seize the moment when the mind is distracted and quickly place a slide in the window. The image must contain the feelings you experience from living inside the slide. When you place a slide in the open window, information is deliberately dispatched into the target sector of the alternative space as opposed to being received randomly from the heart. If you manage to insert the slide in the open window, your mind will have touched on outer intention. You might think that you can create the same effect by running a slide lying in bed before you fall asleep. 
You would think that the slide would gradually slip into a dream and the heart and mind would be united. Yet, as strange as it may seem, this approach does not work. I will explain why in the next section. Before I do, though, see if you can answer the question. Why is there no point in trying to run a slide in your sleep? The frame. A transitional zone exists between the moment in which we have an intuitive premonition of an event and the actual event as it is shaped by outer intention. In other words, when you intuitively sense that a certain event is going to happen, your thoughts brush across it without thinking. Then, ordinarily, the event is later materialized, particularly if the mind agrees with the heart's premonition. It makes you wonder whether you simply had a premonition that the event was going to happen, or whether your subconscious thoughts actually induced the event working in a similar way to outer intention. There is no unequivocal answer as to which serves the original cause. Both explanations have their place. In dreams, everything is much clearer. You barely have to think or rarely sense that an event will develop in a particular way and the scenario is realized instantly. During sleep, outer intention works flawlessly. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with just that. We see the realization of a foreseen scenario in a dream, but dreaming has no impact on material reality. Virtual reality remains just that, virtual. So, why does not outer intention materialize a virtual sector as a result of our dreaming? You might think it is because the inert quality of material realization. Dreaming, in comparison to physical reality, is as a paper boat to a large ship. The paper boat flies off at the slightest whiff of outer intention, whereas only a large sail and extended period of time will shift a heavy ship along. Yet inertness is not the reason why outer intention does not transform virtual sectors into physical reality as a result of our dreams. You can run your slide as much as you like, even in lucid dreaming, but it will not bring you a single step closer to your goal. The thing is that in dreaming, outer intention only has one function which is to carry the soul from one virtual sector to another. This is how it works in dreaming. The mind sets the rudder of the heart's sail in line with its expectations. Outer intention instantly shifts the paper boat to the corresponding sector, and with that, it is done. The mission of outer intention is complete. In physical reality, the work of outer intention can never be completed with one small puff. The wind of intention blows, but the ship is unmoved. If there is unity of heart and mind, the sail will adopt the necessary position. The size of the sail depends on the power of unity that exists. The wind cannot instantly shift the ship to the necessary sector. The qualities of a person's thought energy may already correspond to the target sector, but material realization lags behind in the previous sector. In order for the target sector to be realized, the wind of intention has to work for much longer. The outer intention that works in dreaming has no chance of shifting a ship for the simple reason that the ship's sail has been taken down, leaving just the small rudder of a paper boat to do its work. The wind of intention can propel the paper boat in dreaming, but its capacity for material realization is powerless to work on a ship. This is why running a slide in your sleep will not help the process of material realization. The heart's sail is sufficient to power flight around virtual space but is totally different to the kind of movement that occurs in material realization. 
In lucid dreaming, the slide's only function is to widen your comfort zone, and this is enough. If you practice lucid dreaming, the slide can be an excellent way of widening the limits of your comfort zone in your sleep. In waking, both your conscious and subconscious mind are firmly anchored in the material world. The mind keeps the heart clearly focused on the sector of material realization. As we showed earlier, the mind is constantly correcting its perception to fit in with the established template. By running the slide in waking, you attune your thought energy to an unrealized sector of the information field. Depending on the strength of connection between heart and mind, the sail fills up with the wind of outer intention, and the ship begins to move slowly but surely toward the target sector. Outer intention will continue to do its work until such time as material realization reaches its destination. Can you see the difference? In dreaming, the work of outer intention culminates quickly, whereas in waking, it continues over time. In dreaming, the parameters of thought energy and the targeted sector correspond instantly, and with that, the job is done, whereas in waking, the process is slow and gradual. When you run the slide in waking, the ship's sail of material realization is set, and outer intention works on moving the powerful ship rather than the little boat of the dream world. You must not be put off by my bold use of such simple metaphors to describe these complex processes. They help to convey the essence of things more clearly, and in any case, there are no other analogies in the mind's list of symbols that would be more apt. When the mind has momentarily switched off and the window opens onto the alternative space, the focus of one's perception remains within the context of the current sector that has been realized materially. Unlike in ordinary dreaming, through the window, the ship's sail is still up. If in this instant you place a slide through the window, a gust of the wind of intention will propel material realization a considerable distance. The window is so effective because in this moment the connection between heart and mind is at its strongest. The dozing mind relaxes its control and allows something unreal into its perception template just as it does in dreaming. As a result, the sail takes on significant proportions and outer intention acts with greater force. This technique is more complex than the others we have introduced, but that is not to stop you from giving it a go. Start by paying consistent attention to your intuition and observing the self. Then you will realize that during the course of the day, the window opens quite often. From time to time, the mind gets tired of control and chatter and loses its concentration for a few moments. This is the time to deliberately insert the feelings associated with the event you want to induce. It has to be the feelings specifically, rather than an expression of those feelings in words. Imagine how you would feel if the imagined event had already been streamed into physical reality. Run the slide over in your mind, picturing the fulfillment of the goal, and then take one integral exposure or frame from it. For example, you sign a contract and feel contended, or you pass an exam and the teacher shakes your hand, or you win the race, you push your chest through the tape at the finish line. This exposure is the formula you need to insert into the open window. You can give the frame a one-word title such as, Victory! Yes! I did it! Or anything else you prefer. The title just serves as a reference point for the frame. It is difficult to catch the moment when the window opens because your mind is involved, even though it is dozing, which means that as you set about inserting the frame, the mind will wake up and the window will be instantly slammed shut. With time, you will get the knack for it. The important thing is to be patient and keep your intentions strong.
First, your mind has to develop a frame for the feeling associated with the material realization of your goal event. The mind should actively participate in the development of the slide. Then, without yet trying to catch the open window, turn the slide over in your mind to get a clear sense of the final feeling associated with the event. Create a hook for this integral feeling. Then you will be ready to deftly insert the frame the moment the window opens. Ideally, the dozing mind becomes aware of its sleeping condition and immediately throws the frame through the window before it has time to come to fully. This is how outer intention works when the mind has silenced its inner monologue. Repeated attempts, even if they are at first unsuccessful, gradually become habit, making it easier for your mind to instinctively throw the frame through the window. The point of having the frame is that the mind can activate it rapidly and automatically before fully waking up. If you find the frame technique very difficult to work with, do not worry. Leave it for the time being. The frame technique is described here more for the sake of information than anything else. If it does not work for you straight away, maybe the technique is not for you. Focus on the standard slides and practice the visualization process instead. In any case, it is very useful to acquire the habit of being attentive to the window. If you can learn to catch the open window moment, you will begin to have intuitive insights more often. Summary The mind has will but is incapable of feeling outer intention. The heart can feel outer intention but it is not capable of will. When heart and mind are united, they harness the will of outer intention. Your heart is just as good as the heart of others. You deserve the absolute best. You have everything you need. All you have to do is use it. Stars are born independently, but pendulums light them up. Pendulums hide the fact that every individual has unique abilities. The rule do as I do, creates the pendulum's widely accepted stereotypes. Every soul has its individual star sector. If the mind allows it to, the heart will find its sector. Allow yourself the boldness to sneeze at stereotypes. Allow yourself the boldness to believe in the unlimited capabilities of your soul. Allow yourself the boldness to exercise the right to your own amazing individuality. Keep the joy and give the pride to your angel. Human thought and behavior is conditioned by dependency on pendulums. Keep importance to a minimum and act with conscious awareness. Do not attribute anything excessive meaning. You do not need importance. Pendulums do. It is not effort and steadfastness, but conscious intention that keeps importance at zero. Frail characterizes the individual essence of the human soul. In chasing after other people's standards, the mind becomes all the more divorced from the heart. You will acquire many hidden virtues by attuning your mind to the soul's frail. In a state of unity, the heart sings and the mind rubs its hands in satisfaction. 
Focusing on the means, the mind places a fatal cross on the elusive goal. Allowing yourself to have is the most important condition to fulfill your desires. Despite all its attractiveness, if something weighs on you, the goal may be false. Never believe anyone who expects you to change yourself. Inner discomfort manifests as heavy anxiety, a feeling of being burdened and oppression. A feeling of inner comfort does not signal an unequivocal yes. A feeling of inner discomfort signals an unequivocal no. When considering your goal, do not think about how prestigious or realistic it is. Do not think about the means to achieving it. Give your attention to how comfortable thinking about it makes you feel. Any affirmation should be accompanied by a corresponding feelings. Every affirmation should be positive and have a narrow focus. Focus the affirmation on the cause, not on the effect. Formulate the affirmation in the present tense. When the will to have is free of the desire to have, the pendulum has nothing to hook into. You calmly take what is yours without insistence, just like you take the post from your letterbox.